asking me hundreds of questions, you know, like, what is it, what does it sound like on the space station? And can you look at this lunar rover and tell us if it looks real? And can you shoot a gun on the moon? And then they said, look, you know, we really could use your help. Do you want to, you know, make a deal? Hi, I'm Cosmo Calloway. And I'm Eliana Stanford, and you're listening to Full Steam Ahead. Full Steam Ahead is a student-led podcast where we talk with thought leaders in the STEAM field to pick apart their origins in order to further understand the motivations behind their accomplishments in the hopes that they can provide fuel for the next generation of STEAM students. In today's episode, we're joined with Robert Yoel, aerospace engineer and technical consultant for space-centric movie making. He earned undergraduate and graduate degrees in aerospace and electrical engineering from the University of Southern California and the U.S. Air Force Institute of Technology, respectively, and began his career in 1989 as an engineer with NASA in Houston, where he participated in the space shuttle program as a flight controller and mission control. Since 2011, he has managed spaceflight projects for the U.S. Air Force in Los Angeles. Robert also works with space-related movie productions as a consultant. From pre-production all the way to on-set supervision, Robert is there every step of the way to ensure a level of authenticity and accuracy. He works in tandem with the director, props department, post-production, and more. You might know Robert for his work on Ad Astra, directed by James Gray, and Lucy in the Sky, directed by Noah Hawley. And most recently, the Warner Horizon Appian Way TV series, The Right Stuff. But Robert, without further ado, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Sure, my pleasure. Thank you. We like to get started on the Full Steam Ahead podcast in chronological order. So let's start from your beginnings. Were you always interested in aerospace engineering and space, or was this something that you like took an interest in like later on in life? No, it started, believe it or not, at age four. So uh, I was four in 1971, and uh, that summer was one of the last Apollo missions going on, Apollo 15. And uh, that mission happened to be the first one that carried to the moon the, uh, the rover, the four-wheel drive electric car. And it had on that car a TV camera that was controlled from the ground. So that mission had by far the most TV coverage of any previous Apollo mission. So at age four, I'm just glued to the TV watching this in amazement. And I pretty much from that point said, yeah, got to do this. You know, my brother had the the G.I. Joe space capsule and uh, he had all these records with the voices of John Glenn. So uh, I was just totally immersed from age four onwards. That sounds like the perfect superhero origin story. But besides the mission, were there any other TV shows or movies that really piqued your interest with space at a young age? Oh, sure. You know, of course, I watched Star Trek the original Star Trek. Uh, I watched a kind of obscure British TV series, but it did air in the US, it was called UFO, uh, which was made by the same people that later made Space 1999. You probably remember that, heard of that series. Um, but, but really I was more focused on the real stuff. So, you know, every time I went to the library I'd uh, just grab every book about NASA I could. And uh, I subscribed to a magazine called Space World. It doesn't exist anymore. Uh, that would come every month. And, uh, you know, just 
totally geeked out on it. Remember, this is this is pre-internet, so everything was either in the library or I'd send send away in the mail for something, and it would come, you know, weeks later from NASA. All kinds of free posters and uh, and and interesting tidbits about you know this new upcoming project called the space shuttle. And then when the movie Moonraker came out, uh, you know, that came out two years before the space shuttle even flew. And I think they did a good job of portraying what a space shuttle launch would look like. So that was really exciting. That's crazy. You know, on the podcast, we've had a few other people involved in aerospace stuff. And everyone that's ever said anything is like Star Trek. They're like, I saw Star Trek and I wanted to do that. And it's insane the kind of power that cinematic like works have to like shape an entire, like what you would think is unrelated, but really it's just the intersection of art and science doing its magic. And are there any like um, movies that you think have done it right? Cause I know you do Rocket Man Consulting. So you're like, this is how it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, as far as the fictional, fictionalized films, yeah, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey, I think, set the mark for that. But more recently, The Martian uh, was an amazing uh, example of how you can make fiction more, more realistic, if you will. I think we did a good job at, on Ad Astra. But as far as movies depicting the real thing, truly, you know, Apollo 13 stands out. Obviously, I was one of those people later in the shuttle program, but I was in that same room in Mission Control, and the movie did an amazing job conveying that. Ron Howard did real magic. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but NASA gave the producers of Apollo 13 permission to film in the real Mission Control in Houston, but they didn't film there for only one reason the ceilings weren't tall enough to get the kind of shots that Ron Howard wanted to get. So they rebuilt the entire control center at Universal Studios Orlando, basically tile by tile. You can't tell the difference. And again, I worked in that room. I look at that film. I cannot tell the difference between that and the real thing. That's wild. And speaking on those fictionalized space movies, are there any pieces of technology in them that you can't wait to see become a reality? Well, no doubt, you know, the, the warp drive kind of deal or even, yeah. you know, um, nuclear propulsion in general. I think that's, that's going to be the game changer once we get there. I think it's just a matter of time. We'll get there eventually. But, you know, who, who needs to wait 18 months to get to Mars? Let's get there in a week. You know, that, that, that's what we need. That would be really, really, really super crazy. I, I think um, I was just, that made me think of the Mars rover landing that we, everyone was obsessing over this past. What have you, been your feelings on this, like a new technology? And just like from the perspective of someone who knows, like what was that like for you to watch that on the news? Well, you know, I have to say it, it almost looks routine now, right? But but what's, what's exciting for me as the communications geek that I am, you know, I, I've, I've, I've worked in the whole era of uh, how to communicate with spacecraft my whole life. The kind of quality of video and now sound that we're getting from Mars is what is incredible to me about this mission. That's, 
that's the new uh, uh, mode that we're in. You know, we're going to take for granted 4K video coming from Mars eventually. And until recently, that was next to impossible. So, um, so that that's the exciting thing. And then, of course, the helicopter. You know, once that thing flies next month, it's going to be remarkable. And I have I have no doubt it'll work. What are your thoughts on the prospect of water being on Mars compared to like other, like Europa, the moon of Jupiter? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Um, do you think it's a worthwhile cause? A worthwhile cause to look for it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, sure. I mean, there's no doubt there was water on Mars. It's now mm-hmm. a foregone conclusion when you look at the canyons and the, and the terrain uh, that we see, it's, it's just like dried up riverbeds on earth. So uh, I think for sure, we're going to find it. It's, you know, we know it's there on the poles, right? Um, whether or not it's embedded in the rocks or underneath the, the surface is the other question in other parts of the, of the uh, planet. But what I really think we're going to find someday is some kind of fossil, like a fossilized leaf, some kind of plant life must have existed. I don't think it got beyond that point, but it's just a matter of time. If we dig enough into that surface somewhere, we will find this really cool looking leaf that looks nothing like we have on earth and uh, as a fossilized form of it. And that'll prove once and for all that life um, evolved, albeit primitively, but evolved to some point on Mars. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, I can't wait. Um, and, and Robert, in research for this episode and looking at you know everything you've done and your LinkedIn and things like that, um, one question that, that came up during the process was what your experience was like working at NASA versus working at SpaceX? Well, that's, that's like asking what it was like working in the Russian space program versus the American space program or like going to another planet. It was completely culture shock, uh, a totally different way of doing things. And quite honestly, I think this is still true. Even back then I was employee number 600 of SpaceX, but even now that they have thousands of people, I'll guarantee you there are still relatively few former NASA people that ever worked at SpaceX. And that's simply because it's like having to learn all over again how to work in this industry. So it's, it's much easier for someone your age or someone in, you know, in their 20s right out of school to start off at SpaceX. But if you've already been working in this industry for decades like I was and to step into that, it really took a lot of changing uh, of your, your mindset. And that was not easy to do. It's, it certainly explains why very few people have done it. There, there have been a few former astronauts who've worked at SpaceX, uh, but uh, they would tell you the same thing. It was, a, it was a really huge sea change for them to adapt. That being said, I mean, I'm very thankful I had the opportunity. It was once in a lifetime to be there back in 2009 when it was just starting to, to uh, prove itself. And uh, we, are, we were just beginning the, the assembly of the very first Dragon spacecraft and the first Falcon 9 rockets. Wow. Could you give uh, us an example of how the technology was different? 
Well, just uh, as an example, we were talking about mission control, right? So when you looked at uh, uh, a video of, of the NASA team for a space shuttle mission and mission control, you'd see close to 100 people. For the first Dragon mission at SpaceX in their little control room, probably had less than two dozen people in there, okay? Uh, and that is in, in part due to the advances in technology because they had a, a, a Linux-based uh, system that had uh, smarter ways of looking at telemetry, looking at the data from the spacecraft, making decisions quicker than a person could make or alerting people quicker than, than uh, the old systems we had uh, in the days that I was working on the shuttle program. Uh, granted, today, the control center and mission control has also finally evolved. But uh, consider this, in the mid-90s, when I was a flight controller in the space shuttle era, we were still using the very same room that you see in the film Apollo 13 and some of the very same technology, right down to the pneumatic tubes that we would send back and forth to people with little paper hard copies inside, just like you might see in an old bank, okay? Uh, if you wanted to make a screenshot of the screen you were looking at, you had to push this button that signaled a guy in the basement to make this like archaic kind of uh, facsimile of the, uh, the page, the screen that you were looking at. And it took like 20 minutes to get that. And it had to get to you in one of these pneumatic tubes. It was just crazy. Uh, but uh, we were even compiling commands for the space shuttle on eight inch diameter floppy disks, which you've probably never seen before. That they were this bizarre um, leftover system that uh, probably was created in the 70s. And because it was reliable and because it still worked, we were still using it till the mid 90s. Yeah. My personal opinion, I think we should 100% keep the nomadic tubes. Those are the coolest things I've ever seen. But, um, you know, speaking about uh, the most challenging parts of switching industries, what would you say is the most difficult part about establishing yourself in general in the space industry? Establishing yourself in the space industry. Well, I think you need to become uh, an expert in your field, however small and focused it is, but just become the go-to person for that is, is a key thing to do. And, uh, and once you establish yourself, uh, you're recognized uh, across the industry. I mean, I've been fortunate to have worked both in government and private sectors. And uh, as it is, historically, the aerospace industry is somewhat of a revolving door. You, you run into people all through your career that have worked at Lockheed and then went back to the government and then maybe gone on somewhere else. But um, all in all, they still remember you and remember your, your capabilities. So um, never, never burn any bridges is the important, most important thing for sure. Yeah, it's insane. you talked about how you worked in public and private sectors. That kind of, when we were scrolling through your LinkedIn, we were so shocked to learn that you were in the US Air Force. So what inspired you to get involved with the US Air Force? Well, just to be clear, I was never um, in uniform. I'm a civilian working mm -hmm. in the US Air Force. 
what inspired me to get involved with the U.S. Air Force? So <laughs> it's a little complicated answer. Uh, it more has to do with geography than anything, believe it or not. So I left NASA in Houston uh, 21 years ago to move here to Southern California, uh, mainly because my then girlfriend, now wife, uh, was firmly established here in her job and she wasn't about to move to Houston. So I was thinking, well, uh, I've had a great run here at NASA and I can certainly work in the aerospace field in Southern California. But um, what I discovered is there is this place in El Segundo called Los Angeles Air Force Base, which a lot of people have never heard of because there are no airplanes, there's no runway. It's not a typical base. It's, a, it's sole purpose for existing is to support the Air Force and all its space programs and to support it from management and uh, analytic side. So that's where I found my place, uh, initially working for the Aerospace Corporation, which is across the street from Los Angeles Air Force Base. And they're sort of a think tank slash consultants uh, outfit solely for the uh, Air Force. So I was there um, 21 years ago. And then uh, several years after being at aerospace is when I heard about this guy, Elon Musk and this company, SpaceX, and uh, got hired there um, because I thought it was really great to have, again, the opportunity to do that in Southern California um, and relive what it was like probably in the 60s when the, when the similar types of uh, uh, endeavors were beginning. Uh, after SpaceX, I decided, well, you know, if I actually went back to LA Air Force Base as an Air Force civilian, they would bridge my 11 years at NASA as government time. And it was a great uh, advantage to do that from, from a, um, a benefits perspective, whether it's, you know, vacation, retirement, etc. So that was one real reason uh, why I came back to government uh, I guess now it's 10 years ago already I did that. So it's probably where I'll retire. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how, how things go. And as it is, things have gotten very interesting uh, in the Air Force because now I technically work for the Space Force. And uh, very shortly, Los Angeles Air Force Base will become Los Angeles Space Force Base. So it's, it's an interesting time to be part of uh, the Air Force slash space force right now mm, yeah and uh as a movie consultant do you feel like you're even able to watch space related movies anymore without either crit critiquing them in your head or you know verbally out loud well that was an issue even before i was a consultant quite <laughs> honestly you'll find any space geek will tell you the same thing you know it's they get annoyed about the flames coming out of the back of the rocket ship when it's flying through space, you know, the, the stuff that we know doesn't happen, right? But I have the, the mindset, of course, that it is entertainment after all. So you can't, you can't uh, get too overwhelmed with that. But yes, um, you know, I've seen little mistakes in films like Hidden Figures, things like that. But they're very technical mistakes that most of the general public would not know. And it doesn't, it certainly doesn't demean anything from the greatness of the film, right? So uh, um, 
you know, the, yes, there have been really, really bad space movies, but we don't have to talk about those. <laughs> yeah, we do not have to talk about those. They <laughs> obviously weren't touched by Rocketman Consulting. And speaking of, what inspired you to go from this just like private in-home critiques with your family? Like, this isn't right. Like, they should have done this better. So like actually making a business out of it. It really happened purely by accident, like most things in life, right? So so the story begins uh, several years ago when the Space Shuttle Endeavor was moved here to Los Angeles to the California Science Center for on exhibit. I decided to volunteer as a docent on weekends to, uh, to be there to talk to people who had questions about the Space Shuttle since I was part of it. And uh, I was doing that on weekends for several years. And uh, one Sunday, in 2017, I guess, this woman came up to me. She was obviously like uh, overhearing what I was saying to other guests and said, look, I, I really need to talk to you. I need your help. I'm working on a movie. And you know, it's, it's LA. So I'm thinking, okay, was she like making a student film or something? You know, I, I uh, said, sure, you know, okay, what, what, what do you need? And she had to be very cagey about how, how much she could tell me because, you know, when you make these films, they don't always want to talk in public about what it is. Um, but she said, it's a big film. Um, it involves uh, futuristic space flight and I'm an art director and uh, I'm have, I have to design the set to make it look absolutely real. So I need your help in explain to me all the switches and all this stuff. So I said, sure, okay, I'll give it a shot. And she gave me her card and said, come to this production office in Sherman Oaks one night after work and, and we will talk. So I did that uh, and it turned out that night the, the, the producer was there, the assistant director and the props people. And there must've been like two dozen people asking me hundreds of questions, you know, like, what is it, what does it sound like on the space station? And um, can you look at this lunar rover and tell us if it looks real? And can you shoot a gun on the moon? And then they said, look, you know, we really could use your help. Do you want to, you know, make a deal and maybe you could consult for us? And it turned out it was this uh, film starring Brad Pitt called Ad Astra. So, um, and it was shot mostly right here in LA. So from that point on, they would share, the director would share with me uh, different drafts of the script. And I would point out things that I thought could, uh, could make it more realistic because this director, James Gray, was very focused on realism. Even though, yes, it's a science fiction film, he wanted it to be as believable as possible. So that's how it started. And I, I worked on this film and had a great time doing it. And then a couple months later, I get a phone call from someone also at Fox working on a different film and say, hey, we heard about you at, at Astra. We'd like you to work on this film. And it's, it's going to be with Noah Hawley directing. It's, uh, it's based on the space shuttle program, kind of, you know, it has some pieces in it that we might use your help in. So that's how I got to work on Lucy in the Sky. And that's what happens apparently in this industry. It's one to another, it's word of mouth. Um, 
And that's how I ended up uh, again, working on the right stuff. And I've already in the last few months heard from another producer working on another film that I might be working on next year. So it's kind of neat how, um, just as we were just talking about in the engineering field, you become an expert or the go-to person. The exact same thing is true in the entertainment industry. Yeah, uh, I, I have my own little theory um, when, it, when it comes to that as well, because my dad also works in the, in the entertainment industry. And so my theory is that, you know how there's like the, the six degrees of separation? I think in, in Los Angeles, like it can't be more than five. Like there's no way that that has to be the most. Um, but going off the idea of, you know, prop development, has there ever been a moment where, you know, uh, life has imitated art in your work? Like you've seen, you know, some piece of technology shown off in a sci-fi film or TV show. And then later on, like you, you actually saw it in reality. There's a great example of that if you go back to the 60s. Uh, it's a movie called Maroon. It's not a household name, but it's kind of a cool movie. It actually starred Gene Hackman as uh, an astronaut. Um, and has Gregory Peck as a flight director. So the story of that movie is an Apollo crew, uh, not going to the moon necessarily, but um, coming back from a stay on Skylab, like a mini space station, uh, can't come home. Their, their retro rockets won't work uh, and uh, they're stuck in this Apollo capsule with no way to get home. And uh, in the movie, it's a Russian uh, spacecraft that comes up to dock and, and rescue them. But that film came out a year before Apollo, the real Apollo 13 happened. So it's kind of an interesting uh, foreshadowing of, oh my God, you know, we have astronauts potentially lost in space. And actually that film um, used a very famous uh, writer as their key uh, consultant uh, who actually ended up uh, writing the, the book that became the $6 million man. He was a really interesting guy. And, um, uh, was well recognized for his expertise uh, in, in the industry. Yeah, that's it's fascinating how connections and networking and everything can really get you so far. People are so interesting. And like even with this podcast, like everyone's like, how do you get such interesting people at the intersection <laughs> of art and science? Now, and we're just like, you just have to ask. Like they just <laughs> like like if you show an interest in people, people show an interest in you. And it's just an amazing thing that gets lost with social media and everything. Um, but just kind of going back as we're wrapping up, like how did you get in, like into NASA? Like how did you get your foot in the door? And do you have any advice to any of the younger generations that want to follow in your footsteps in that regard? Well, like you said, it, it had a lot to do with networking. This, again, this is pre-internet. Uh, I was um, in my senior, either junior or senior year at USC. I was working on campus, just making a little money in alumni relations. So like I would like call alumni and try to sell season tickets to the football team, things like that. My boss knew of my interest in space. And one day she says to me, you know, Robert, I have this new neighbor. She just moved here from Houston. 
She was a flight controller in the shuttle program and she left uh, just after the Challenger accident. And I told her about you and she'd be happy to talk to you and uh, um, see what she can do if, you, if you're interested in ever working there. Well, it turned out this woman actually arranged for me to have a full day of interviews at the Johnson Space Center. All I had to do was pay my way to get down there. So I bought a ticket on Southwest Airlines. I just flew down there for the day and flew back that night. I had like seven interviews with different people in the flight control area and mission operations. And you can imagine, I mean, I never set foot before down there. And here I am, this 17 year old or, you know, uh, 18 year old guy just mesmerized by this. Um, so I had all these interviews. I must've impressed someone because uh, three months later, I got a, a, a job offer from NASA uh, to start as a GS7. It's like a low level <laughs> civil servant position, but I was gonna start the week uh, in July of 89, which was the 20th anniversary of Apollo 11 which was also just magical to start that week. Um, but that's, that's how it happened. It was just, like you said, knowing the right people and they're no, they knowing your, your interest and uh, the rest took care of itself. All right, Robert, you're in the hot seat. Do you have any projects or things that you're working on that our audience members can look forward to coming out in the future? Uh, well, I can't talk about the yet one of them but uh um yeah in in general stay tuned uh i will always keep my my website updated as things uh progress but yeah i'd say uh there will be more just uh, stay tuned and i hope i hope your listeners uh have watched the right stuff on disney plus uh um there might be more coming from there too we'll see I love it. I love the mystery. And if you want to check out any more of Robert's work, be sure to visit his website at www.rocketmanconsulting.com for more. Yeah, and to Robert, thank you so much for being here. It really means a lot to us that you took the time out of your very busy schedule to sit down with us and talk about your experience and inspiring us and others for sure. And a special thank you to our audience. We greatly appreciate you tuning in. And we'll see you next time on the Full Steam Ahead podcast. And if you can, be sure to follow the Full Steam Ahead podcast on Instagram for the latest updates, as well as maybe ask some questions or two and see if they're featured in the next episode. Thanks so much.